This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have a new HITS instructor with us today. I have Taylor Ron. She's an attorney out of uh, New Mexico, I believe, and she's going to be teaching at HITS in uh, Phoenix this uh, coming August. So Taylor is new to, to HITS, but certainly not new to our profession. So I brought her on here today just to kind of talk a little bit about her to introduce uh, her to our HITS audience. And then also uh, she's got some great information that's relevant for all dog handlers. But today we're specifically going to talk more about patrol dog handlers. So good morning, Taylor. How are you? Morning, Jeff. I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing good. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're uh, busy, so I appreciate you jumping on the phone here today with us. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up helping out uh, police dog handlers as a profession? Sure. Well, when I went to uh, get my undergraduate degree, I actually got my undergraduate in criminal justice, uh, which at my school actually focused on more than just uh, psychology and criminology, which a, a lot of those criminal justice degrees are, we actually did some police investigations classes. And what that meant was, is that a lot of people in my degree program ended up being police officers. So I've always had an interest in the police. Actually, my dad is a retired deputy chief from Albuquerque Police Department. My grandfather worked for the APD and went on to the FBI. And my great grandpa was a police officer as well. And shockingly, I ended wow. up marrying a cop. <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> yes. Um, so my whole family is, is, is law enforcement. And that's really why I have a passion for being in this area of law. Uh, the, as far as I ended up at the firm that I was at, when I went to law school, I worked at the firm that I currently work for, which is Robles, Rael, and Denia. And we specialize in civil liability for police and other government agencies. So that's your your day to day operations is is defending uh, agencies and a lot law enforcement officers. I take it. Yes, that's the bulk of what I do. I do a few other things, but my specialty is use of force, defending use of force lawsuits. Specifically, I do a lot of deadly force, or I try to work on a lot of deadly force cases. Although not all cases I work on involve uh, deadly force, and we've had a handful of cases that involve sure. the element of police canines as well. Okay. And to get into that part of, of law to where you're defending the agencies for deadly force, there, I'm sure there's some additional training you go to, to, to kind of learn that aspect of it. Well, lawyers aren't like uh, doctors where you have to do a residency. Once you graduate law school and you pass the bar, you can practice any law you want. Um, but our firms really encouraged uh -huh. me and specifically my mentor, Mr. Robles, encouraged me to learn about law enforcement. So I actually have gone to a lot of canine training programs and just watched the day-to-day -day canine operations, um, done a bunch of ride-alongs. Uh, so it's not required, but it's certainly something I thought was important. So I've had the yeah. opportunity to watch uh, several agencies train um, and been a part of, you know, like I said, some some scenarios. I haven't gotten in the bite suit yet. I'm a... <laughs> a little nervous to do that but maybe that's, one day i will that's the best part of dog training for sure I tell you <laughs> that. so and it, then in the recent past you've you've defended agencies on on patrol dog issues 
Yes. Um, sometimes we've had dogs that were used in SWAT situations or after officer involved shootings. Um, and then I also train for a canine company here based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I've taught at several national canine conferences, um, you know, in the past several years. And, and that's, yeah. that's kind of what I specialize in, is in all uses of force, um, involving in, in including canines. Great. Well, we're happy to have you be part of the HITS team this year, and uh, or I guess it's coming next year in Phoenix, so we're happy to have you jump on with us. So today, um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, just like a broad overview. Um, I know we talked a little bit before we started the show about how we, w- what we wanted to talk about today, and I know you said uh, you had some, some uh, ideas about uh, for the show that we could talk about that would be yes. an overview. Yeah. Yes. So I think one of the critical things about canine case law is to understand that even though it's different than some other types of force, the rules are generally going to be the same. And what I mean by that is, is that you're still looking at a Fourth Amendment analysis. And because I understand your listeners are kind of across the country, I'm just going to focus on federal law. But I'm sure you know that each state has its own standards and case law, but I'm really just going to talk more about the federal law because it, it it's it's fairly consistent around the country. And most states that I'm familiar with kind of start with the Fourth Amendment analysis um, and build from there. So I think that's a good foundation for anybody, even if they're in different states. Sure. Um, so the first concept would be is that any time an officer gets sued or criminally gets accused of using excessive force, the starting point is still going to be Graham v. Connor, which most people in law enforcement should be familiar with, or actually all people should be familiar with, but most are. (laughs) Um, It's a Supreme Court case from 1989, and it sets the standard for use of force claims. And the standard that came out of Graham v. Connor is the objective reasonableness standard. And I'm sure, Jeff, you know, you've heard of the three Graham v. Connor factors. Sure. And so just to review for everybody, those Graham v. Connor factors are the severity of the crime at issue, whether the suspect's resisting, evading, or attempting to uh, get away by flight, and the threat that is presented by the suspect. So when you're dealing with canines, just like if you were going to pepper spray someone or use deadly force, you are still going to consider those three factors, those three Graham v. Connor factors. Sure. And I think that's a good refresher for a lot of canine handlers. Sure. Sometimes they expect that there's this different analysis for canine, and it's not. It's just Graham v. Connor. And uh, on those factors, the most important thing that we're looking for in most instances are gonna be, is going to be the threat presented by the suspect. And that really dictates the severity of force you get to use. Um, you can use handcuffs or sp- pepper spray for people who aren't a threat but are non-compliant. But when you get to these higher end uses of force, you're really going to be mostly focused on the threat. But I did want to mention something that comes up a lot for canines. Canines are a high liability area for a lot of departments. And so they try to write good policies for them, which is good. But most canine policies that I'm familiar with really focus on, in regards to the first Graham v. Connor factor, they focus on a felony misdemeanor distinction. And one thing I would encourage Mm -hmm. officers to consider is not just is it a felony or is it a misdemeanor, but to consider the violence of the crime. Sure. 
Um, sure. Because obviously you can have a felony that's not violent and you can have a misdemeanor that maybe is violent. Um, so I understand a lot of policies, like I said, they just make that strict felony misdemeanor distinction, but I'd encourage handlers to focus more on whether the individuals uh, committed a violent crime. So when I think about sure. So let me case, ask you a question. Let me sure, ask you a question yeah. right here on, on uh, regarding that is I, I see a lot of policies. I do a lot of expert witness stuff. So I've seen a lot of different policies and the ones that, in my opinion, I thought were um, better were some of the ones that were maybe a little more succinct all the way down to I've seen somewhere they basically just say we follow, you know, to, to play the dog, we follow Graham B. Connor. Is that mm -hmm. two little words or too succinct? Or I mean, because I, I agree, I have seen somewhere we only use them, you know, on leash for adult felonies or something. I think that that's kind of crazy. But wh where do you, for, when you're writing a policy, um, do you have a suggestion as to what should be in there? I think that uh, being brief is helpful and there's always that tension between what should be in policy and what should be fleshed out in training. And I agree with you that I see some sure. folks try to make too many decisions in policy and you really do just need to train your handlers to have the appropriate discretion. So I would probably recommend putting more than just follow Graham, but uh, the, the level of detail of like specific crimes you can bite for and not bite for, uh, that's, that's more of a training issue to me and probably shouldn't be explicitly set out in policy. And I'd like to see more, um, you know, nonviolent versus violent rather than just felony misdemeanor, because that's really where the law goes. Okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think that we start with Graham v. Connor and with canines, a lot of people are really looking for, especially for a patrol, they're looking for guidance of when they can use a dog and deploy the dog and the dog's going to bite a suspect. I know they don't always bite them. So I uh, sometimes I get, uh, uh, you know, I'm just a lawyer. I'm not a police officer. So sometimes yeah. when I teach about the law, people kind of get on me for my tactics and I, well, I don't have tactics. I'm just a lawyer. So, <laughs> so I understand that sometimes when you <laughs> yeah. deploy a dog, they don't bite, but um, I'm sure. going to use that as like, if you're going to deploy a dog, there's going to be a bite at the end as uh, the kind of what analysis I'm going to use. Um, so in terms of deploying okay. a, a police canine, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum, right? You can have a suspect who's not dangerous and is completely compliant. And I don't think it's going to surprise any of your listeners to hear you can't dog that person <laughs> under the law. Sure, it's yeah. pretty well established that if they're not dangerous and they're compliant, we don't need to use really any force against them except for perhaps some handcuffs. On the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who is violent, who is dangerous and who's non-compliant. And in most circumstances, you're going to be justified and it's going to be objectively reasonable to use a dog in that situation. Now, lawyers really love okay. exceptions <laughs> to that. So there's sure. going to be some, yeah. I'm sure someone can come up with a situation where there's a, a, a nonviolent compliant suspect and there's some reason to use a dog. And I'm sure you can think of a situation where someone got in trouble or sued or something for using a dog against someone who was dangerous and non-compliant. But in general, those are kind of the two extremes of using a dog. So the gray area yeah. and where a lot of the guidance needs to come from is w where a suspect is either not dangerous, but not compliant or dangerous, but compliant. And I'm sure a lot of the officers that are, that would be listening to this are thinking, well, those are kind of hand in hand and that's true. And so one thing is an officer you need to think about is how to articulate why not following commands does create a danger because it's kind of hard to think about someone who's 
dangerous at that moment, but is being fully compliant. And so there are kind of, there's a lot of overlap between the two. So I've read a lot of the case law from around the country. And that's one of the unique things about canines is that when you look at like deadly force, every jurisdiction has enough deadly force cases that they have their own case law, that it's clear. I could go pull up California federal court um, or the Ninth Circuit, which is the court of appeals for that area, or the Tenth Circuit, which is the court Uh of appeals for where I am, and I can find hundreds of cases of deadly force. But canines are a little bit more rare, so you may be looking at other jurisdictions for guidance rather than having a really clearly established law in your jurisdiction. And I don't know, sure. um, and I and I think that's one of the kind of hard things about teaching folks for canines is that because I can't give case law for each jurisdiction, sometimes the rules might change. And I might say, well, this is how the Ninth Circuit does it, or this is how the Fifth Circuit does it. But if you're in the Eleventh Circuit and they haven't talked about it yet, you may not really know where to go with it. Yeah. Um, sure. And the, the interesting thing in this gray area about uh, uh, suspects who aren't totally compliant and non-dangerous, but aren't totally non-compliant and dangerous, that gray area is that the courts have treated that differently um, around the country. So there are some courts that have found that the use of a police canine is appropriate for non-compliance, even if you don't have underlying violent crimes, even if you don't have overt actions by the suspect that um, generate some type of threat to the handler. And some courts have found that the use of a canine for basically a compliance tool is unconstitutional. So the factors that that officers need to take into account when they're going to use their canine in a situation where they can't really clearly articulate a direct threat like the suspect's not armed, not trying to hurt anybody at that time, but they're being non-compliant. What you'd really like to be able to articulate is the fact that you've given them multiple commands. I really doubt that a court is going to uphold and find justifiable the use of a police canine if they said, one time, show me your hands, and then used a dog. Um, And that brings me to another kind of unique factor for canines is that courts really across the country are very focused on warnings for canines. And that's something that, and I'm sure as a handler and being an expert witness, you see that all the time that people are like, well, did you warn them? And so we always try to focus on announcements and some of the things with announcements that have come up with me when I've given advice to agencies or individual handlers is how do we record that announcement? So we've gotten some interesting feedback for from different agencies about how they do that. So some of them actually key up on the radio and they broadcast the announcements over dispatch. Um, so like one officer's on the PA and another officer's just basically recording yeah. it by making it a radio transmission. Um, that might not be feasible depending on how many channels you have. If you want to try tie up a whole sure. radio channel for that. Um, yeah. Some agencies just record their canine announcements, especially if it's something where they're setting a perimeter and they just play it. They just, there's a recording that they play. So they know exactly what was said, how long it was played, things like that. Another aspect to consider is that areas where you have a lot of folks that don't speak English 
Like I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we have a very high Hispanic population and we have a very high population of folks that don't speak English. So in certain areas and in certain circumstances, it would be required for the officers to actually give the announcements about the police presence and the deployment of a police canine in Spanish. Sure. There may be other areas. Um, I'm thinking maybe in California because they're, they're pretty diverse um, where they may have a high population of people who speak a language other than Spanish. So it may be beneficial sure. for agencies to get a card you know, phonetically written out about how to give those warnings in a different language, or that might be a good place for a recording. But that's something courts are always sure. considering specific to canines is um, yeah. warnings. And do body cameras help with that too? Like say if I'm on the far end of a perimeter, I got my body camera on and I can, I can show that I could hear it a block away in between where the canines are starting and the suspect, I would think that would help. Yes, that body cameras can be very effective at capturing whether or not announcements were made. Um, sometimes folks ask me, well, what should I say in my announcement? And you really do want to identify the agency, the fact that you are with law enforcement. And the other thing you want to do is tell the suspect what you want um, them to do. Because that's something that we see sometimes is said, well, I didn't know what they wanted me to do. And that's, that's just, just kind of a training tool is that you always will only want to have one person giving them commands because I've seen a lot of instances where one officer says, get down. And the other one says, show me your hands. And the suspect tries to do something kind of sure. in between. <laughs> um, and that's not, yeah. that's interpreted <laughs> as a threat. Um, yeah. So that's some guidance is just to have one officer um, and actually makes a legal difference. So that way there's never any allegation that the suspect was confused about what they were supposed to do. And another thing that people ask me, and I don't know, Jeff, maybe you can tell me what your practice is when you train folks is that they say, uh, this, um, I'll release my dog. If the dog finds you, it may bite you or it will bite you. Um, I don't know what your, your philosophy on that is, but. Uh, mine's always been just that it may bite you. Um, that way they know there is a consequence, but, um, sure. I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen both and I've, to be honest, I, I, I'm not passionate either way about it. Do you have an opinion on that? I actually don't. And a lot of people, it's funny because they asked me that and they real passionate about, well, you need to say will, because that way they're not surprised if it does happen. But then some folks say, if you say will, then it sounds like that's what you wanted. And I really don't see it being a legal consequence. Sometimes handlers get caught up in questions they get asked during the lawsuit. And there's a lot of questions that attorneys choose to ask that wouldn't be admissible at court in court. And they wouldn't actually change the sure. outcome of the litigation. Um, sure. So that's the, the warnings one is one I get a lot that they think it'll like make or break the case in it. And it really won't. Um, some attorneys may make a big deal about that. But as a matter of law, it's not going to change whether or not your warning was appropriate. Um, as long as they do some type of warning, and that's as, I think we're in agreement yes. there that that uh, I, I've done a few cases where a, war a recorded warning would have saved them ever going to trial, I believe. Yes, and that's um, and and another aspect of warnings that I would actually give some advice on. That's not um, not necessarily a legal matter, but just more of an optics. And I don't know if any agencies outside of New Mexico do this, but I've seen a lot of agencies in their training when they're giving commands to the suspect, they, they call him bad guy <laughs> and they'll say, bad guy, show yeah. me your hands. 
Um, you know, you definitely don't want to call people names uh, um, because, you know, then there's that whole obviously argument that yeah. he thought he was a bad guy. Um, so some yeah. more generic, like you could call him suspect. That's not so, so bad or sir. You're not going to know their name a lot of the times, but that was one yeah. thing I didn't know if people around the country did that, but it always kind of makes me cringe when I hear the bad guy <laughs> um, when you're giving. <laughs> I have heard that. I never thought about, but yeah, it's a good point. I, I have heard that. It's not probably the best, best thing to say. Yeah. So I think, I mean, so warnings are very important and it's just one of those areas of law where they really do focus on warnings. So um, the other kind of issue that I'd like to bring up in regards to the legality of deploying a canine, we already talked about Graham B. Connor and we know we kind of focus on the threat. And if you have a threat, that's going to be the strongest way to justify the use of a police canine. Um, Non-compliance can justify the use of a police canine, but I would encourage you to articulate why that non-compliance creates some type of safety concern. But moving to, you know, other aspects of the law regarding police canines, another thing to consider is continued deployment or redeployment. Most dogs are going to be trained on the bite and hold technique is my understanding. You do want them to remain on the bite until the handler orders them off. Is that, is that your experience too, Jeff? Um, yeah, I mean, that's the far majority of dogs are, are trained that way. So you're not really looking for, you know, continued kind of nipping at the suspect. Um, so a lot no. of suspects really look for that dog to come off the second that they say, I give up or I surrender, or, please take the dog off. And that's where I see actually a lot of litigation is, is that the suspect's like, okay, I was doing dangerous stuff, but as soon as I put my hands up, you should have called the dog off. And so that actually raises a training question of whether your dog needs to be able to be verbally outed or needs to be able to, you know, come off just with an e-collar shock or something like that. I'm not going to go into that here because I'm not a specialist, but that's a question yeah. under the law. How quickly do you have to be able to get your dog off? What I see is a lot of handlers have to physically extract their dog um, to get the dog off the bite. And I don't think that's an illegal uh, practice, but it is interesting to think about whether there's some liability for that delay while the handler is approaching the suspect and being able to safely approach the suspect to remove the dog. So the thing that officers need to think about when deploying their dog and leaving their dog on the bite is continuing to justify why that person's a threat or non-compliant, or sometimes why it's not safe for the officer to approach the suspect and remove the dog. I'm thinking of an instance where uh, one of the agencies that I work with down here had a bite and the the helicopter was overhead. So it's a night vision, you know, setting, but the officers yeah. had to walk through a bunch of brush to get to the, to the dog and to the suspect. So they couldn't visually clear his hands until they actually got right on top of him. So the dog was on the bite for several minutes. And I think that's pretty well justifiable. Um, but that's something that you need to think about as an officer is that if you deploy kind of close to you and you can immediately kind of visually clear the suspect's hand and they're screaming, you know, I give up, please get the dog off. And they're not resisting anymore. There does come a time where you need to get that dog off or the continued deployment, even if the initial release of the dog was acceptable, the continued deployment can be deemed unconstitutional. Sure. Sure. That's a hot topic right now. And if you look at any of the training forums and stuff, cause there's a lot of different, topics to come up about um, how to remove the dog and people are using, um, you know, different tools to do so, or, you know, taking them off hard or calling them off. And 
Um, I think, I think there's a combination of training needs there as well as, um, the, I think it, eventually I imagine the litigation is going to point us into a probably a more common practice because I see it all over the map, you know, different, different departments. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if we, there would be like a standard of care established that you, that in order to have a well-trained, appropriately trained dog, it's a requirement that they have to verbal out and that because well, you have to every, have every single it, certification. Know? Yeah. Every, every single national certification that I'm aware of, and I'm, I'm pretty, pretty in tune with all the, all the major ones require a verbal out. Um, some, some agencies try to get their dog to do it only on that day. And they, they say they would never do it otherwise. So there is a, that's a, a, a really hot topic. I'm sure on the legal side, as well as on the training side that, um, since most, most of his dog trainers all have different opinions, I imagine it'll be the courts that end up uh, pointing us in one direction or the other, but um, it's, it's always good to discuss it. Yeah. Well, I think I agree. And I think that what you'll see in the courts then is that if they're the experts, you know, the dog trainers disagree about it, what'll happen is, is that there'll be a situation where this comes up and you'll have an expert on either side and you're right. The court or the jury will give some insight as to whether or not they think it's a requirement that the dog be able to, you know, get off the bite as soon as the handler can perceive that there's no longer a threat. Um, and I haven't seen any case law that says right now that's where we're at. That And one of the things I guess I didn't talk about at the beginning, but I think your listeners might be familiar with, is that the way that the courts are structured, a trial-level court doesn't make law. They resolve the controversy between the parties, but it doesn't mean anything for future cases in terms of what the law is. So the only courts that actually sure. make law are the appellate courts. Um, we have, you know, those in the federal system broken up geographically. And those circuit courts can do whatever they want until the Supreme Court tells them that what they're doing is wrong. So what you might have sure. is that California and the Fifth Circuit may say, oh, you got to verbal out your dog. If you can't get it off within a second after realizing the suspect's not a threat anymore, that's unconstitutional. The Seventh Circuit may say something different. And it would take quite a while, I would think, before the Supreme Court would actually say yeah. anything on that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's an interesting topic. Um, but, you know, those are the things that the court's going to look for. Like I said, we're always going to come back to the Graham B. Connor factors themselves. So Sure. So let me throw you a curveball that we didn't talk about that um, I'm sure you have an opinion on is body cameras. When I uh, talked to Gene Ramirez on this uh, same general subject, uh, Gene had an opinion about body cameras. And the reason I'm asking you now about body cameras is I think that the whole release and removing the dog from the bite, I think the body cameras are changing that um, that whole discussion a little bit because what to me doesn't look bad might look bad to you as a person who's not a dog handler when you see it on a body camera when I'm removing the dog. And I think that's going to change some of our training. And really where I'm getting at for our listeners that, all, that are paying attention to it, they all know, you know, like uh, – a brake stick is a real common way that takes a dog off a bite very, very quickly just by, by touching the back of their mouth with the tool, as opposed to trying to take them off physically. And, um, you see some handlers on body cameras having difficulties doing that. So my question is two part is, um, do you think, do you think I'm in the right thing that the body cameras are probably going to dictate some of our training? And also in general, do you like, uh, dog handlers wearing body cameras on deployments? Sure. In response to the first question, I absolutely agree with you. I think body cameras are going to change every aspect of policing. Um, there's there's not an area of policing that it's not going to impact. Sure. And I agree with you. Watching someone struggle to get a dog off, um, 
is going to raise a lot of concerns for the suspect, for the dog, um, especially some of the rough ways you see dogs removed. So absolutely, I totally agree with you that the in the regards to your first question that that extraction technique and also the other thing with that is that you're going to see someone there screaming for what seems like forever, but in reality is 10 seconds. Ah, the dog's hurting me. Please, I give up. I'm not armed. I didn't do anything. And that's going to be really dramatic for people to be able to see it on a body cam, as opposed to a report where the officer says, uh, I approached and took my dog off. And there's no, you know, none of that kind of screaming in the background. In regards to your second question, I, I really, I don't, I think that body cameras are really tough. I think they really help in a lot of the lower hanging fruit, like, people who say, Oh, the cop took me back in the the back of the police car and beat the crap out of me. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Yeah. The body cam, but these higher end uses of force, like shootings and canines, they're just not pretty. And I think a lot of people sure. just have a visceral reaction to seeing all that gore. And especially with canines, the blood and the screaming and it it's, it's the way it's always been. It looks the way it always has, but the yeah. public can now actually see that. So, I mean, I think that if I was an advising an agency, um, a lot of times it's going to be a political decision by whatever governing body it is. Um, and it's really not the agency's decision. Um, but I, I have some hesitations on body cams. I represented an officer who was charged our firm did. Um, I didn't really, wasn't the lead attorney on it, but our firm was a part of representing an officer who was charged with homicide for an on-duty shooting. And I firmly believe the only reason why that happened was because there was a body cam, because if there had been no body cam, people wouldn't be able to second guess whether the suspect was moving forward yeah. at the time he was shot. They played that video about a hundred times during the criminal trial. And oh, they yeah. would have had no ability to kind of Monday morning quarterback that had there not been a body cam. But I also have a lot of cases where they go away right away because the body cam disproves. And I know sure. for criminal cases, it's been helpful for some district attorneys um, who just like, especially DWIs, you know, there's no subjective. Yeah. Well, I didn't step off the line. You know, you can just watch it and say, yeah. I saw you step off the line. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of make, I have mixed. So is there, is cancer. there, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a difficult question for everybody. I think, I guess what I, my question is that if, if your agency is using them 90% of the time, but just when, when things get ugly, you turn them off, isn't that going to be raise red flags to a, a jury? I mean, Oh yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't I'm not say I'm, I'm not an advocate. Yeah. I'm not an advocate either way. It's just a question that I, you know, I, I just wonder about. Oh, no, I totally agree. If your agency has a general policy of body cams that I think everybody on your agency, except for undercovers or real, you know, uh, real type of investigative tools. Yeah, you can't just eliminate patrol dogs from having body cams. That would be that, you're right. That would look very suspicious. Uh, I would think if you if your agency and, makes and the decision to go with body cams, uh, you just got to deal with it. Exactly. And even during a deployment. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I agree it doesn't look pretty, but I think, you know, that's kind of the world we live in. So uh, it's, I think if it's a, a justified deployment and you can show the training and show the professionalism, even though it's a violent encounter, hopefully most juries would understand that. Hopefully. Yeah, people have a pretty visceral reaction to dogs. I mean, it, it is uh, in some ways people, it's kind of barbaric, right? <laughs> we just bite someone yeah. who's not listening to us. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's definitely an ability to win cases even when the bite itself is captured on camera. I don't I don't disagree with that. It's just kind of hard to overcome that, especially because the suspect's usually in a lot of pain 
and they're screaming, you know, because then it seems like we're just doing something so terrible to them. So, but I agree. If there's a decision by the department to have lapel cams, then everybody should, you shouldn't turn it off just because, oh, that's going to look bad. That's, that'll be way worse. Yeah. Um, So, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has all been uh, really good information. I think uh, we talked to, we're going to get you back on here because the follow-up on this is basically if you've uh, used any type of force, of course, we're talking about police dogs, then explaining uh, why it was proper is probably the next important step, you know, as you write your report. And I know you uh, are going to teach about that in uh, Phoenix as well. So if we can bring you on again and we can uh, discuss that aspect of it, I think it would be a great follow-up. Okay, well, great. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. And um, I hope your listeners found this helpful. And I am looking forward to meeting a lot of the HITS members at the conference uh, next year. Outstanding. So if you guys like uh, this type of subject and you like all different types of dog training, check out hitscanine.net. Hitscanine.net will give you the um, instructors that were put on board so far, and that will be updated quite regularly. We're starting to really pick a lot of instructors for HITS in Phoenix. Uh, it'll be in August of 2020. We'll be in Phoenix. So hitscanine.net will give you all the information. I'll put uh, my email as always in the show notes, and I'll also put uh, Taylor's contact information in the show notes. So if you want to reach out to her and discuss anything or ask her any questions about uh, the show, whatever, she'd uh, be happy to re- reply to you in an email. So thanks again, uh, Taylor. I appreciate you coming on today. Thanks, Jeff. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come the HITS 2020. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come the HITS 2020 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2020 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffle gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there, and we've been there too.